Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, A New Nation, with a message entitled, Death and Hope. So turn to your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49, verse 28, to 50, verse 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The last part of Genesis 49 brings us to the death of Jacob, which, which reminds us, well, reminds us that people die. You know, in that regard, it's interesting to read Genesis chapter 5. You know, it's a lengthy genealogy, so if you're reading it, it is possible that your eyes will glaze over and you're going to skip to the next chapter. But, but for me, what's fascinating is that with every name that gets introduced into that genealogy comes the statement at the end of the account, and he died. Adam lived 930 years, and he died. All the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died, and and so on. Every person, at the end of their lives, comes the word, and he died. And this in spite of the rather incredibly long lifespans that would last over 900 years. I mean, how would you like to live that long? It'd be incredible, the changes that you'd see, the learning that you'd accumulate, the projects that you'd accomplish, the worldview that you'd develop. But even while those years are vast, they come to an end, and he died, says the text, and repeats it 18 times. Indeed, every human story ends with those words, and he or she died. Your story, my story, they're going to end in the same fashion. The last thing to be said of us, we died. Are you afraid of death? You know, many of us are, and if you are, might I encourage you to consider carefully the words of Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, the fear of death really does haunt many of us. I know there's a great deal of bravado out there, and I personally love the image that, you know, there isn't that saying, whistling past the graveyard. You know, it gives a sense of being somehow cavalier in the face of the reality of death. But the fact that the man is whistling a tune as he passes the graveyard really does betray him. He's steadying his nerves. He's trying to hold his emotions in check. If we were studying Hebrews, it would be appropriate to ask how Jesus has delivered believers from the fear of death. It's an important study. But this is not a study of Hebrews. This is a study of Genesis. And this is a consideration of the death of Jacob. He's the last of the three patriarchs. So let's begin by reading Genesis 49, 28 to 29a. All these were the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. You know, Jacob has been on his deathbed and he summoned his 12 sons to his bedside And he's given an appropriate blessing to each of the 12. And after the task is completed, he's ready to move on. I'm to be gathered to my people, he says. You know, in the past, I have already pointed out that the words gathered to his people, well, it's a common saying. It was said of Abraham in Genesis 25, 8. And then it was said again of Isaac in Genesis 35, 29. And here it's said of Jacob. Later on in Numbers 27, that phrase is used of Aaron. Numbers 31, that phrase is used of Moses. Judges 2.10 speaks of the faithful generation who served the Lord during the years of Joshua. And then it says, all that generation was gathered to their people. 2 Kings 22 speaks of righteous King Josiah being gathered to his people. 
See, I've also in the past acknowledged that there are those scholars who will argue that this expression means no more than that their remains would be laid in a common tomb. But as we will find out in the case of Jacob, he is gathered to his people, but he's only buried more than two months later, perhaps even three months later, given the length of the journey to his tomb. The gathering to one's people Well, that might be symbolized by a common burial cave, but it's a symbol of a much greater reality. It is the reality of joining with those that have gone before you into the afterlife. And that does bring us to the question of how the Old Testament saints thought of the world of the dead. You know, those of you who are familiar with that theme might respond by saying, oh, well, yeah, the Old Testament seems to indicate that at death, People go to Sheol, which is the land of the dead. It's a land of, you know, shadows and gloom without many details given. But even in that, there are a number of good Bible scholars who have argued that the ancient Hebrews distinguish between a good and a bad death. And even though at times a bad death is a, you know, a premature death or a violent death, that's not always the case. You know, in the case of righteous King Josiah, His death is indeed violent and it's premature, but his death is said to be a good death, a part of God's care and promise to protect him and care for him. But are there expressions in the Old Testament of the hope of a good afterlife and the warning of a bad afterlife as there are in the New Testament? Yeah, I think there are. You know, for instance, there is in the book of Isaiah a taunt against the king of Babylon and what will happen when he dies. So I'm reading Isaiah 14 verses 9 and 10. It says, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who are leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who are kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. You know, Isaiah sees a vast number of the dead kings rousing up and saying to the king of Babylon, aha, so you the greatest of all the earth's oppressors, are now brought to be with us. And in Isaiah's vision, there is a conscious, awake, and experiential afterlife, and the dead are depicted as mourning and weeping as to how far they have now fallen. But what were the expectations of the righteous in the Old Testament? Well, we need to admit that it is definitely not as clear as it is in the New Testament. But you might want to consider the words of Job in Job 19, 25 to 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Or consider Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Well, now, there certainly is a hope of a resurrection there. Or how about Daniel 12, 2 and 3? And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Or consider those sobering words that come from Psalm 49, verses 13 to 15. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. 
Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. You know, I could go on and on. Psalm 16, verse 10 contains the promise, but you shall not abandon me to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Or we could do an extensive study of Psalm 73 when when the psalmist is struggling with the prosperity of the wicked and how the whole thing speaks of injustice. He's so oppressed in his thinking, he said, he almost abandoned his faith. And then he went into the temple of the Lord, he says, and he saw the final destiny of the wicked. Now, he can't have meant that the destiny of the wicked is simply natural death because, well, that's the final destiny of the righteous as well. Indeed, in verse 24 of that psalm, the psalmist expresses himself with confidence. Psalm 73, 24 says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Or consider the words of Psalm 23, where David expresses his confidence that he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, you might wonder why I'm belaboring this point. Well, I am for two reasons. You know, first, I'm aware that a great many more liberal Bible scholars have indicated that the belief in an afterlife did not concern the Old Testament saints at all. But I've now cited a number of texts that tell us quite the opposite. No, no, the belief in an afterlife was not added during a later date. It was there in the heart of the Old Testament. Now, the second reason I belabor this point is that we must not think that the Old Testament saints are so very different from us. You know, they had the same uncertainties and fears about death as we have. The people of all the generations before us faced their fears. They recognized that death had entered the human race, and they, like we, needed assurance that when worms destroy this body, it is not done. And in this way, Jacob's death provides a role model for all of us. Notice that he doesn't say, I'm about to die. He could have said that, and it would have been true. Instead, he says, I am to be gathered to my people. What Jacob thinks about when he thinks about death is being brought together with the people of God who have gone before him. It's a matter of perspective. It's a clear insight into the nature of death. Thinking this way can be a wonderful way of thinking about death. Sarah wrote, Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life with depth, practicality, challenge, and hope. The world has changed. Technology has made everything closer. Ministries have changed, and yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching and has embraced technology, all while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. Well, messages like this help us feel we're hitting the mark. And with God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Our special thanks to all those who listen and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement and commitment means so much. So please continue to stand with us with your prayers and gifts. And Back to the Bible Canada will continue to do all it can to impact lives with the gospel. You can join us in this effort with your financial support by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca. I'm reading Genesis 49, 29 to 33. 
Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And Jacob has moved from his confidence in his eternal dwelling place to the more practical matters of his burial. And ever concerned with the details, Jacob mentions the specific spot where he will be buried. It will be at the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which today is very near to the city of Hebron. Jacob is absolutely certain that he does not wish to be buried in Egypt. And that reasoning is very easy to come to. You know, Jacob has set his sights on the promised land. Of course, his son Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt, and by now Jacob has lived in Egypt for 17 years, and that's long enough to begin to appreciate the blessings that had been given to him there. His sons had all found land by that time, and no doubt their families were growing as well as their prosperity. The years of famine were now well behind them, and I have no doubt the last years of his life would have been pleasant. Egypt had provided him with what he had longed for all of his life, peace and prosperity, safety, and a cohesive family. But Jacob has not forgotten the promise that was made to his father Abraham. God had told him that he would give him the land of Canaan. And no doubt, Jacob remembered the promise that had been made to Abraham, which you know was recorded in Genesis 15, 15 to 16. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See, that promise seems to indicate that there would be a time when Abraham's descendants would be out of the promised land. Indeed, it seems to speak of four generations in which Israel would be out of the land. And given the very long lifespans that attended the people of God back then, even Moses lived to 120, we know that the time the nation would spend in Egypt was 430 years, and and the latter part, as we know, would be cruel years indeed. But Jacob wants his burial in Canaan, not because he thinks about death like the pharaohs of Egypt, you know, that unless you're buried in the right place or unless you're buried with all the proper equipment, you won't have success in navigating the afterlife. See, there's no indication that Jacob ever thought this way. His hope was in the one God who had revealed himself to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to himself. But Jacob is not unaware of the importance of symbols. So let me suggest an example. So you might remember from Daniel chapter 6, Daniel, like Jacob, is living in exile away from the promised land. And he, Daniel, has very powerful enemies who are conspiring against him. And Daniel's enemies believe that he has but one weakness. He will not deny his God. And so they manage to convince the king to make a law that for 30 days, only the king is to be worshipped. And Daniel 6 also says that Daniel had made it a practice that three times every single day, he would open the upper chambers of his house and he'd face towards Jerusalem and he'd pray to God. Now then, does God only answer the prayers of a man who's facing Jerusalem? Well, of course, that's not true. He answers the prayers of the righteous. But symbols are not without effect. 
And Daniel's determined that this spiritual symbol in his life, this prayer of hope while facing the land of promise, it's not going to be broken. And as we know, this event was the event that precipitated his arrest and, of course, the amazing miracle in the lion's den. But the symbol of facing Jerusalem in prayer, it's a symbol that Daniel was determined never to give up no matter the cost. Well, let me suggest one more example, and I actually hesitate to use it because I know that there are some who are going to listen to me that are going to disagree at some level with what I'm about to say. I'm going to say that baptism and the Lord's table are symbols. And I know, I know. There are some that are going to say, look, they're way more than symbols. They're means of grace. Others are going to say, no, they're just symbols. Well, I'm not wanting to enter into that debate now, but whatever the mystery is in the practice of the Lord's table and of baptism, we must agree there is a very powerful symbol that is there in that practice. Baptism symbolizes dying with Christ to our old way of life and rising to a new birth, a new nature, a new eternity. Why can't we follow Christ without that symbol? Well, I suppose we could, but the symbol is God's way of cementing an important center in our lives. Same is true with the Lord's table. There have been times when I personally have trembled at the table of the Lord. This bread is my body. This cup is my blood. I mean, these are the very elements that symbolize the purchase of my salvation. The symbol of the table is so constant that, you know, unless I'm deaf and blind, my repeated experience at the Lord's table forces me to see the cross as the center of my life. I guess what I'm saying is that symbols aren't just symbols. They are means that God has chosen to convey deep spiritual conviction into the hearts of his children. And that's my point. Jacob could have been buried anywhere and still have been assured that he was being gathered to his people, but he chooses to insist that his sons bury him next to the other patriarchs with their wives. He wants it to be said that he died thinking not just of his people, but thinking of the land of promise. And now he's in communion with those who have gone before. That symbol has to be communicated. And that brings us to the question of the relationship of the promised land to the New Testament teaching about heaven. What is the relationship between those two things? And I need to say at the outset that the Old Testament never actually solves that riddle. And that's because, as we've already seen, that while the Old Testament saints had this robust hope in the afterlife, the actual details of the afterlife were still hidden from them, waiting to be revealed at the time of the New Testament. But we do get some hints that the Old Testament saints might have seen a connection somewhere. So you might remember that when Pharaoh had asked Jacob how old he was, he talked about the years of his sojourning. So we get a sense that even when Jacob was living in the land of promise, he still saw himself not as a permanent resident, but as a traveler. So why does Jacob express himself that way? Well, if we go ahead to the book of Jeremiah, we come to a very interesting story. You know, Jeremiah 32 happens while the forces of Babylon have surrounded the city. So Jeremiah knows that the Babylonians are going to succeed. They're going to break down the walls and enter Jerusalem and take the people into captivity. But then comes the most peculiar drama. Jeremiah is told to approach his uncle Hanamel and buy a piece of property from him. It's, it's the craziest thing because, as we know, the boots of the Babylonian warriors are standing on that piece of ground right then. But Jeremiah buys it and puts the deed of sale in an earthenware vessel and it would last a long time. See, that comes with a promise that one day houses and fields will again be bought in that land. 
How is that going to help Jeremiah? I mean, he'd be long dead before that happened. Is Jeremiah counting on, in some way, inheriting this land in the world to come? Well, the text doesn't say. But the Old Testament does have some hints. Ezekiel 47 mentions a river flowing out of a new temple in Jerusalem that will heal the world. And Zechariah 8, 21 to 22 says, The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts. Where? In Jerusalem. And to entreat the favor of the Lord. See, the promise of the prophets is that one day the promised land will house the Messiah and draw the whole world to it. From the perspective of the New Testament, when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, Jerusalem is at the center. It descends from heaven to earth. See, Jacob, I think, had some inkling that the promised land would be the place where salvation was proclaimed to the earth, but it would also be the place where all things would be made new. It would be the center of God's new creation. And so he says in faith, look, don't bury me in Egypt. Bury me where all my hopes lie. That's why death through the lens of faith is never that fearful end of our hopes and dreams. Rather, it is the day of our glorification. It's the day that we have breathlessly awaited all of our lives. It's that hope that we have that there is coming in our lives this wonderful land, the promised land of which we are waiting to come to. You know, for us who are on this side of death, let's not view death with temerity, but rather let's view death as our opportunity to pass through the portal and inherit the promises. Thanks so much, John. You know, I think it's true to say that uh, most of us, if being honest, fear in some way the thought of death. I think most would say that's normal. But what about the child of God? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, sometimes very, you know, plain that there are believers who, when they're on their deathbed, do have fear. But however, I think that we need to say that uh, we need to ask ourselves, which is greater, the promises of God or the emotional response that we're feeling at any given point in time? Uh, Secondly, I'd like to also say that, you know, from my vantage point, there is such a thing as dying grace that at the point of our own death, we expect there to be an extraordinary grace from God. So I would say this to all believers who fear death, um, don't worry, Uh, at the point of your own death, God will provide enough grace. There will be enough for you to be confident in that day. John, thanks so much. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A New Nation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Whether it's the daily program with Dr. Newfeld, words of encouragement from Phil, or In Doubt's weekly conversation with young people about questions of life and faith, each ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is designed for one purpose, to grow people in their daily walk with Jesus. This month is our fiscal year end, a critical time for each ministry. But today I wanted to focus your attention on In Doubt. Young adults are facing challenging questions and hearing voices that influence how they think feel, and live. In Doubt makes a difference. If reaching young people for Christ is on your heart, perhaps you'd consider participating in our fiscal year end this month. The goal for In Doubt is to reach $75,000 by June 30th. 
Your gift would mean so much in reaching young people with Bible teaching they can trust. To give, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca.